Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Cedar Home. My name is Dan Halleck. I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm so thankful you've joined us online to worship the Lord this morning. I hope you're doing well today and wish we could be together uh, in person, but we're so thankful we can gather together this way online. This morning in the book of Ephesians, we have come to one of the most offensive teachings of Scripture. Uh, it's, it's not offensive in the sense that it is sinful, of course. It is offensive in the sense that it offends sinful people. This is a doctrine that we talk about a lot when we talk about the gospel. It's also a doctrine that people often misunderstand, people misuse, people abuse for sinful purposes. And at the same time, this doctrine is at the heart of the gospel that we preach and this doctrine is, of course, the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. Let's define those terms here. Grace is God's unmerited favor that he shows to those who deserve only his wrath. Grace is God's unmerited favor, which he shows to those who deserve only his wrath. And faith is believing in God and trusting in God. Faith is believing in and trusting in God. And so God tells us in his word that although sinners deserve his wrath because of their sin, God shows some sinners his unmerited favor, his grace, which they receive by believing in and trusting in him. They receive it through faith, specifically faith in Christ. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 to 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The doctrine of salvation by God's grace alone offends our sinful flesh, because it says that we are sons of disobedience who are unwilling and incapable of obeying God or pleasing God. The doctrine of salvation by God's grace alone offends us because it says that we are by nature children of wrath. We are bound to suffer an eternity of God's wrath because of our sinful rebellion against him and in our flesh, we feel that this is a punishment that really is overkill and that is unjust. The doctrine of salvation by God's grace alone offends us because it says that we do not contribute anything to our salvation. No matter how moral we've been, how good we've been, how successful we've been, how faithful we've been, we can do nothing to earn God's acceptance or to maintain God's acceptance. We can do nothing to rescue ourselves from hell or to free ourselves from sin. The doctrine of salvation by God's grace alone offends us because it means that anybody can be saved by God. People who we don't think deserve to be saved can be saved. People who we think are much more evil than we are can be saved by God's grace alone. The doctrine of salvation by God's grace alone offends us because it means that many people who are very good and very moral and very religious 
will not be saved from God's wrath despite their many good works. And that type of grace is offensive to many of us. And as offensive as this teaching of God's grace through faith is, it is at the heart of the gospel. This doctrine is the only way that any one of us can trust that God fully loves us and accepts us right now. Uh, This doctrine is the only way that any of us can have confident hope of eternal glory that is going to be with Christ and that that is coming. One of the most poignant and historically significant testimonies connected to this doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone is the life of Martin Luther. Luther lived during the late 1400s and early 1500s. He lived during a time when much of the Christian world did not believe this doctrine, did not believe in salvation by grace alone through faith alone. The Roman Catholic Church had strayed from God's word. It was teaching that a person can only be saved by God's grace through faith plus the good works that a person does. This teaching was was not the gospel, obviously, and it devastated many, many people. And one of those people devastated by this false gospel was Martin Luther. And in 1505, when Luther was just 17 years old, uh, he got trapped in a, a terrible thunderstorm. And it scared him uh, so bad, he was sure that he was going to die. Uh, he was actually knocked down uh, to the ground by this nearby strike of lightning. And at that moment, he yelled out to a Catholic saint, begging that saint to save him. And he said that uh, it, he promised that if he survived that terrible storm, he would become a monk. Well, Luther survived the storm. And two weeks later, He kept his word and he became an Augustinian monk. Professor Stephen Lawson writes, In the monastery, Luther was driven to find acceptance with God through works. He wrote, I tortured myself with prayer, with fasting, vigils, and freezing. The frost alone might have killed me. What else did I seek by doing this but God? who was supposed to note my strict observance of the monastic order and my austere life. I constantly walked in a dream and lived in real idolatry, for I, seated, uh, for I did not believe in Christ. I regarded him only as a severe and terrible judge portrayed as seated on a rainbow. Elsewhere, Luther recalled, When I was a monk, I wearied myself greatly for almost 15 years with the daily sacrifice, tortured myself with fastings, vigils, prayers, and other very rigorous works. I earnestly thought to acquire righteousness by my works. Fear only compounded Luther's personal struggle for his acceptance with God. And in the midst of his spiritual struggles, Luther had become obsessed with the Bible verse, Romans 1.17, which says, For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther had understood the righteousness of God to mean his active righteousness, that is his avenging justice by which he punishes sin. And on those terms, 
Luther admitted that he hated the righteousness of God. But while sitting in the tower of the castle church in Wittenberg, Luther meditated on this text and wrestled with its meaning. And he wrote down his thoughts and he said, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring, murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, As if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel, and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. Luther continues, At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. When God helped Luther understand that God saves sinners by God's grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ, out of love for them, the overwhelming burden of all of Luther's attempts to make God happy were lifted off of him. God opened Luther's eyes. And Luther finally understood that only Jesus perfectly obeyed God, and only Jesus fully appeased God's wrath by dying on the cross. And so, it is only through faith in Jesus, through trusting in Jesus, through trusting in Him and what He has done, that we can have peace right now with God, and that we can know for sure that God accepts us right now in Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. And that's what Luther finally understood. And it was Luther's belief in that and his preaching of the gospel of God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, that led to his earthly condemnation. As he began to preach this widely, the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church denounced him and denounced his preaching, quote, dangerous doctrines. The Pope called Luther, quote, a wild boar who has invaded the vineyard of God. And the Pope wrote an edict, and he had it delivered to Luther, 
And in the edict, Luther had 60 days to repent of his teaching or to suffer excommunication from the Catholic Church. So how would Luther respond? Luther responded by publicly burning the Pope's edict. So which is more offensive to you? The, the fact that Luther publicly burned an official edict from the Pope? Or that Luther faced excommunication and death for preaching that God saves sinners by God's grace alone through faith alone? This morning, let's open up the Bible for ourselves and see why the grace of God is such a big deal. If you have your Bible with you, please open with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And uh, we'll read through Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 to get the context. And then we'll focus on verses 8 through 10 today. Before we read, let's ask the Lord to help us. Lord, we thank you for this day that we have to gather online and to worship to you together and to uh, be sanctified through your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your grace, God, for the unmerited favor that you show those who deserve only wrath. Thank you, God, for that. And we just ask that you would work in powerful ways right now, Lord, to uh, transform our hearts and minds into the likeness of Christ, to give us great joy and uh, desire in, uh, joy in and desire for you, God, and also for those who are not Christians who are watching, God, that they uh, would see their need for you, Holy Spirit, and that you would make them born again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's uh, start at Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul begins verse 8 with the word for which means that he's connecting these verses with what he's already been saying. And specifically, he's connecting all of the spiritual blessings of God that he's described in chapters 1 and 2 with the reason now that God gives those blessings. In fact, you could say that verses 8 to 10 are actually a summary statement of everything that we've read so far in chapters 1 and 2. And what Paul says here is that the reason for every spiritual blessing we have in Christ is God's grace. It is due to God's grace, which we have received through faith in Jesus. 
Let me say that again. The reason for every spiritual blessing we have in Christ is God's grace, which he has worked toward us. Now, I want to start then by sharing three observations about verses 8 and 9, and then I want to share three observations about verse 10. So let's start by looking at verses 8 and 9. First, God has saved you, Christian, by working the matchless power of his grace toward you. Okay, God has saved you, Christian, by working the matchless power of his grace toward you. Have you ever considered the enormity of the cosmic power it takes to pour out the grace of God onto sinners? A grace so powerful that it fully absorbs and appeases the wrath of the holy God of the universe towards sin? A grace so powerful that it imputes the righteousness of God himself to unrighteous, undeserving human beings. That's an amazing, matchless power that only God has. You know, I've, I've, because I've heard for so many years that God is gracious, I think I've assumed that it must therefore be easy and effortless for God to cover sinners with his grace. And, and in one sense, it is easy for God because he is infinitely mighty and God can make every good thing happen that he wills to happen. But that doesn't mean that covering sinners with the grace of God is an easy thing to do. We as a human race certainly don't have that kind of power. We do not have the power to extend the grace of God towards sinners. No matter how powerful we think we are, we cannot save sinners. God's work of saving us by his grace re required, uh, it requires such eternal, infinite might that it required the sacrifice of God himself. The sacrifice specifically of God's only son, God the Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the grace of God in human flesh. God the Father gave up Jesus to suffer God's wrath toward sin and sinners in order to then raise Jesus from the dead to be our Savior and to be our righteousness and to be our saving grace forever. That's amazing. We thank the Lord for exercising his matchless power to give us grace to give us the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. Every aspect of our eternal salvation in Christ, that is every spiritual blessing that we have in Jesus Christ, is because God has with great power worked his grace toward us in love. You know, too often I think when, when we think of what it means to be saved, we think too narrowly. Uh, maybe when we think of salvation, we think only of the moment when we maybe pray to prayer and ask God to save us. Or uh, maybe when we think of salvation, we think only of, of, of the fact that we have been rescued from hell. Uh, we need to understand that God's salvation includes all the ways that he has powerfully worked his saving grace toward us. 
in the past, in the present, and in the future. In Ephesians 1, Paul doesn't begin to describe our salvation by talking about the cross of Christ. Yes, that, 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 that was the pinnacle of the atoning work of our salvation. But God was graciously working to save you and me in Christ long before Jesus went to the cross. And God has graciously worked much to save you since Jesus went to the cross. Just consider all the aspects of our salvation that Paul has described in Ephesians 1 to 2 that are ours only because God has mightily worked his grace toward us. God powerfully worked his grace toward us, it says, when he predestinated us and chose us before the foundation of the world. God powerfully worked his grace toward us when he ransomed us from sin and he removed our sins from us and he redeemed us by his blood. God powerfully worked his grace toward us when he sanctified us by imputing to us the righteousness of Christ. God powerfully worked his grace toward us when he reconciled us to himself so that we're no longer at war with God. We are at peace with God now in Christ. God powerfully worked his grace toward us when he adopted us as his sons and daughters so that now we are the children of God. God powerfully worked his grace toward us when he sealed us and indwelled us with himself, God the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our eternal salvation until we acquire it. God powerfully worked his grace toward us when he made us alive together with Christ when we were dead in our trespasses. God powerfully worked his grace toward us when he raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And God will forever work his grace toward us when he shows us for all eternity the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's what Ephesians 1 and 2 says. And so when we say that we are saved by grace and not by works, um, we're not only saying that Jesus died for sinners. Yes, we are saying that. But we're also saying that God, uh, his exercise of saving grace toward us empowers us to trust in Jesus's death for sinners. We're saying that God's exercise of saving grace toward us is what makes us alive. <laughs> it is what then empowers our sanctification. It is what empowers our transformation into the likeness of Christ. It is all the grace of God. It is all because of his saving grace. And so God's saving grace not only refers to the accomplishment of our salvation on the cross, God's saving grace also refers to God's application of that saving work to us before the foundation of the world 
and during our lives when he made us alive so that we could respond in faith to the gospel. And currently in the heavenly realms as we are seated with Christ. And currently on earth as we are sanctified during our lives on earth. And in the future when he will pour out the riches of his grace and kindness toward us forever. God's grace is all of that. God's saving grace, our salvation through by grace alone is all of that. God, uh, his saving grace is past, way, way past, before the foundation of the world. God's saving grace is present on earth and in heaven, working toward us. And God's saving grace is future, way future. Praise God for that. His grace covers us completely. God has saved you, Christian, by working the matchless power of his grace toward you because he loves you. My second observation about verses 8 and 9 is that no part of our salvation is our doing. No part of our salvation is our doing. We do not contribute one iota uh, to our salvation. If, If we did, we would not be saved by God's grace alone. We would be saved by God's grace through faith plus our good works. We would be saved by grace plus by our good works. And that is exactly what every heretical offshoot of true Christianity has ever taught. That, uh, that they say that salvation is not by God's grace through faith alone. It's you, it's you must contribute to this salvation to make it happen. And, and this is exactly why Paul wrote in Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, that is obedience, then Christ died for no purpose. (laughs) So if you think that in order for God to accept you, you must add your own works to the work of Christ. The work that Christ did in his perfect life and in his substitutionary death and in his victorious resurrection. If you think you need to add to that, then you do not understand the gospel. You do not understand the good news because that is no good news at all because it means it's still on your shoulders. Our good works that we do for the glory of God come as the result of him saving us. Good works do not contribute to our salvation and they do not keep us saved or accepted by God. If you think that praying or going to church or taking communion or following God's laws, which are good things, but if you think that those things make you saved or that they keep you saved, then you don't understand the gospel. Only the work of Jesus, which he finished, which is applied to you by the Spirit because of God's grace alone, that you receive through faith alone, is what saves. And as a result of that salvation, you then do good works because you love the Lord and want to worship and obey him. And you want to love the the people around you the way God's told you to. But if you get the order of those things mixed up, that's a major problem. Because you turn, you're actually participating in religion and not the gospel. It's, you are work-minded salvation versus grace-centered salvation, okay? Um, You are actually saying that Christ died for no purpose. If you think that your works, 
that you combine with Christ's work save you, then you are nullifying the grace of God. That's what Paul says here. In Ephesians 2, 5-9, Paul really, really wants us to understand that we're saved by God's grace alone and not by contributing any of our works to it. In fact, Paul says this at least six different times in verses 5-9. to In verse 5, Paul says that it was when you were dead that God made you alive together with Christ. You, when you were dead, you were unable to please God. Nothing you did could save you or, or make you, you know, please God or submit to his law. You were dead. You did not accomplish your salvation. You did not grab onto God. What happened is Jesus, while you were a sinner, accomplished your salvation for you. He grabbed onto you and his spirit made you alive. That's what happened by God's grace. You contributed nothing. And then in verse 5, Paul interjects in the middle of the sentence because he can't hold on to this amazing thought. And he writes, by grace you have been saved. He, he just has to throw it out there. He wants it to be real clear. By grace you have been saved. And then in verse 8, Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So he says it again, by grace through faith. Faith is the way that we receive God's grace. And then Paul says it is uh, this in a different way. He writes, this is not your own doing. This is not your own doing. He's trying to be very crystal clear with us. This grace, this faith, this salvation is not your own doing. And then he says it a different way, writing, it is a gift of God. This grace, this faith, this salvation is a gift of God. Your salvation is not payment for something you have done. It is a gift God gives you, even though you don't deserve it at all. That's what grace is. And then he says it a different way, writing, it is not a result of works. <laughs> it is not a result of works so that no one may boast. You see, if, if we say we're responsible for initiating um, or making any part of our salvation happen, then we could point to ourselves and not only say that we contributed to our salvation, but we also could boast about our contribution to our salvation. But that is just not the gospel. The gospel is good news of how God saves in Jesus Christ. The gospel is not good instructions for how you can save yourself. Hear that? The gospel is good news of how God saves sinners through Jesus Christ. The gospel is not good instructions for how you can save yourself. The gospel is humbling, and that's why it offends many people. It humbles everybody at the foot of the cross. The gospel leaves no room for pride, no room for boasting, except to boast in Christ alone. The only reason for grace, the only reason for faith, the only reason for salvation is because of the love of God in Jesus Christ through which he has given us his grace. That's it. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. We, and, and, and it just means that, uh, that, well, it means no part of our salvation is our doing, obviously. And that's why Paul wrote in Galatians 6, 14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me 
and I to the world. Our salvation is not our doing. It's only because of God's grace. Thank you, Lord. And my third observation here about verses 8 and 9 is that by grace, it says you have been saved through faith. Have been. Have been is in the past tense. It's talking about something that means that that has already happened. And so this too testifies of God's grace. It means that if God has made you born again and you've responded to the gospel with repentant faith, then you are already saved. And so in other words, Paul doesn't say that Jesus will save you if you keep doing the right things. That's not what he says. Paul doesn't even say that Jesus will save you someday if you trust in his grace. No, Paul says you have already been saved through faith by God's grace because your salvation is entirely the gift of God, a loving God who chose you before the foundation of the world. And so far in Ephesians, God has reinforced this over and over, this fact that we have been saved already. That's what it means that that's, that's why the Holy Spirit is in us. That's why he's indwelling us as our guarantee of our salvation and our guarantee of our eternal glory. It's why God uh, has made us born again. It's why we are already seated in the heavenly realms with Christ. Uh, our salvation is guaranteed. It is just a matter of time until God brings us to the throne in heaven to sit with Christ for all eternity. That too, by the way, Assurance of salvation was deemed a heresy during the time of Martin Luther. Um, but the Bible clearly testifies, as we see here in Ephesians alone, that the Holy Spirit is our guarantee. He, he indwells us to, to unite us with Christ, to make us a born, born again, to, to so seal our union with Christ that we're already seated in the heavenly realms. And so we approach death even now with confidence because we're not trusting in whether or not we've done enough. We know we haven't done enough. We're trusting alone in the awesome saving work of Christ, which has already saved us and already brought us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Thank you, Lord. So Christian, you have been saved by God's grace through faith. That's what it says. Now, as I mentioned earlier, uh, this teaching of God's grace is often misunderstood. It's often abused. Many self-proclaimed Christians use this teaching to justify their own sinful behavior, their own sinful habits. And like I've already said, our eternal acceptance before God is not accomplished by our good works. And also it's not sustained by our good works. Rather, our our good works serve to worship God and to do His will on earth and in heaven. Now, true saving faith, though, is a part of the picture. Uh, 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 sorry, the, the works that accompany salvation are a part of the picture. Paul wants us to know that, that, that saving faith always results in good works. When God makes people alive together with Christ, He makes them into new creations, who want to do the work of God now. 
That's why they're new creations. And this is why Paul then follows Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 with verse 10, which says, For we are His, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want to quickly make three observations about this verse. First, Christians are God's workmanship, not their workmanship. Christians are God's workmanship, not their workmanship. Uh, I was trying to figure out when I looked at this why Paul started verse 10 with the word for. Why did he do that? Because again, like we talked about earlier, the word for would connect it to what he just said. But verse 10 really seems like a different thought at first, right, when you're looking at that. But what I think Paul is doing is a little wordplay with the word work. If you look at verse 9, Paul just said that our salvation is not a result of works. And then Paul starts verse 10 by saying, For we are his workmanship. So what I think he's saying is that when God worked his grace toward us and made us alive into new creations, God worked and God alone worked. And so we, that means, are God's workmanship. We who love Christ are not the work of our hands. We are the work of God's hands. That We are new creations because God made us new creation. We are His workmanship. We are His works of art. We are the works of God's grace and kindness. We're not our workmanship. So what that means is what? It means we can't boast about it. It means glory to God alone for the workmanship he has created us to be in Christ. In the words of the Chris Tomlin song, not to us, God, but to your name be the glory. Not to us, but to your name be the glory. So Christians are new creations created by God's work, not by their work. Second, Born-again Christians walk in good works, it says. They walk in good works. Verse 10 says that the types of workmanship God created us to be uh, uh, when he made us in Christ are, uh, excuse me, oh yeah, the, the type of workmanships we are to be are workmanships that walk in good works. So we're workmanships that walk in good works, okay? So, um, That means we are created by God for good works. That's what it says. God prepared the good works beforehand in which he wants us to walk. So now, if you read, having read verses 1 to 10 in context, do you see how our walking is now a very different type of walking than we used to walk before we were alive in Christ? Before God made us alive together with Christ, Today's passage says we were biologically alive, but we were spiritually dead. We were dead people walking in our trespasses. And we were walking in our sins alongside all the other sons of disobedience. As we walked and followed, we walked behind and followed the devil. We were walking behind him toward the lake of fire. But now our walk is distinctly different. Now that God has saved us by his grace 
through faith, we are biologically alive, uh, biologically alive and spiritually alive now. So we are now the new workmanship created in Christ Jesus. We are walking in good works now, which God prepared beforehand. We are walking alongside other sons and daughters of God. And we are walking in joyful obedience of God, not disobedience God of God. We're, we're walking now behind Jesus, following in his steps. He is the author and finisher of our faith. The, the Bible says. And where are we walking toward as we follow Jesus? We are walking toward heaven where we are already seated with him in glory. That's amazing. So born again Christians walk in good works. Good works are our habit now. They are our lifestyle now. This is what we are seeking by the power of God in us that sin and trespassing God's law would no longer be our habit and our lifestyle. This is why 1 John 3, verses 8 and 9 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So born-again Christians walk in good works. And third, our good works are the good works of God. And for this third point, I, I, I really liked what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this. So I just want to read you this quote from, from uh, Lloyd-Jones. He says, I will tell you the sort of works that God is interested in. It is not the miserable works that you can do as a creature in sin by nature. It is a new kind of work, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. God's good works. What does this mean? He means that our trouble is not only that our notion of Christianity is inadequate, our notion of good works is still more inadequate. So he's saying, put down on paper uh, the good works that people think uh, are good enough to make them a Christian. Get, get people to put all these down on paper. Write down those things which you are relying on to save you. Uh, put them down and then take them to the Lord and say to the Lord, Lord, this is what I have done, which is worthy of your acceptance and of my salvation. Lloyd-Jones says, that is laughable. That is also monstrous. Look at what they're doing. They, these are not the types of good works God is interested in. And he continues, so what are God's good works? Well, the Sermon on the Mount in the life of Jesus Christ provide the answer. Not just a little negative goodness and morality, not perhaps doing an occasional kindness and being very conscious of it. No, disinterested love. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death, even the death of the cross." 
Those are God's good works. Loving God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Loving our neighbors as ourselves. Not doing our neighbor an occasional good turn, but loving your neighbor as yourself. Forgetting yourself. Those are God's good works. And those are the works he created for us to do. So our good works are the good works of God that he has instructed us to do in his word. These are the good works which we walk in because it is our lifestyle. It is, it is our habit. It is our trademark now by the grace of God that, that we walk in these things now by the power of his spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. After burning the Pope's edict to stop preaching salvation by God's grace alone through faith alone, Martin Luther was summoned to appear at the Diet of Worms in Worms, Germany. The Holy Roman Emperor Charles V was giving Luther a final opportunity to recant. Stephen Lawson writes that the renegade monk was shown his books on a table in full view. Then Luther was asked whether he would retract the teachings in the books. The next day, Luther replied with this, his now famous words, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures, or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. These defiant words became the battle cry of the Protestant Reformation. Scripture alone. Christ alone. Grace alone. Faith alone. For the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word today. Thank you for loving us so much that you show us your grace, your unmerited favor toward us, even though we deserve your wrath. Thank you, God, for the gift of faith and repentance, God, that uh, you make us alive, that we can turn to you and you take the blinders off our eyes. You pull Satan's blindfold off of our eyes so that we can see the glory of God and Jesus Christ and our need for you. Thank you for showing us, God, that none of our works and none of this world around us can save us or satisfy us. Thank you, God, that this is a gift to all who will receive it. Lord, thank you for loving us so much that you gave us the gift of Christ. You put him down on the altar of the cross. He was sacrificed for us that we might live forever with him. Thank you, God, for that, and may we celebrate that every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Hope you have a great day. Um, we'll talk to you later. Bye.